Good evening. We're going to read Romans 12, verse 1 to 13. And follow along on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining on the live stream. It's good that uh, you're able to check in with us. Uh, before we start, I would just want to give you a heads up about where we're going for the rest of the term. Shanae's already mentioned that this is the last of our little mini-series we're doing on community. So next week, we start a new sermon series where we're going to be tracking from the middle of Luke chapter 19 all the way to the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We've been doing a journey in Luke's Gospel for, I think, five years at WBC, chipping away at it. And we're coming to the end. So uh, tonight, you can pick up the series handbook that will uh, have your Bible studies in it for your home group, space for sermon notes, that kind of thing. They're out in the foyer on the far wall, $2 donation. Grab one of them uh, if you're planning on being around for that series and look forward to it. Why don't we pray, uh, and then uh, we will get stuck in Romans 12. Let's pray together. Uh, Awesome God, thank you so much for freedom to be together as your people. Uh, Even being in the same room together, Lord, we know that this is a privilege that not everybody who is a follower of Jesus gets to enjoy around the world. And so thank you deeply, Father, uh, that we have your word, that it's open in our laps, that you're with us by your spirit, that you're at work even now teaching us and growing us and changing us to be more like Jesus. So we pray that you'd please do that work as we sit under your word now. Give us faith to believe it. Uh, Fill us with your love and help us to be obedient to what we hear tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've got a question for you as we start off tonight. My question is, can you be a Christian and have little little or no contact with other Christians. Ponder that for a second. Uh, How crucial is it, really, uh, to be a part of a church? That's what the question is kind of getting at, if you like. Can you, in a sense, take the Christian faith and jettison the Christian community? Is that an option for us? 
can you do that and be a faithful Christian? Not sure what your answers to that question are, uh, but I hope you know that many people are asking those questions today. They're not new questions. Questions like that have been asked for 2,000 years. But on the back of the pandemic, a lot of people who go to church are asking those sort of questions. How, how crucial is it really to be involved in a community like this? Uh, in their book, Rediscover Church, which Rod quoted from a couple of years ago, a couple of, author, uh, a couple of weeks ago, rather, excuse me, uh, Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen uh, catalogue the many, many reasons why Christians are finding it hard to be engaged in Christian community in these kinds of moments on the back of the pandemic. They list a whole bunch of factors that are at play. Uh, for, for starters, the last two years have kind of broken the habit of weekly church attendance for heaps of people. Uh, and so there's just people who aren't sure that it's even a habit worth kind of re-establishing anymore. Uh, there are still people, obviously, who are not yet ready or willing for a whole variety of, of legitimate and illegitimate reasons to gather back together again. Uh, there have been, over the last couple of years, lots of debates about masks and vaccines and government policy, and all those debates have served to do is to highlight just how different the body of Christ really is on those issues. Uh, there have been heightened political and racial tensions over the last couple of years worldwide, and that has bred suspicion in churches as members realise that they're on different sides of political aisles around those issues. And on top of all that, there have been, of course, uh, disappointments that church members have faced in the way that church leaders have navigated these rough last couple of years. And so a lot of churchgoers, on the back of all of those sort of reasons, have concluded that their lives would be simpler if they just didn't have to bother with committing to meeting up with a bunch of people that they don't really even like anyway. I mean, after all, is it really that important? That's the question. I read an article this week on ABC uh, News about the future of the church in the metaverse. Uh, now, if you're uh, probably over the age of 40 and you don't know what the metaverse is, um, basically it's a virtual reality world that um, has been gaining a lot of buzz in recent months since Facebook announced back in October that they were going to be investing billions of dollars in building up, fleshing out this virtual reality world and it was going to be opening up for business and that sort of thing. Now, in this article, they interviewed a pastor from the US, a guy named DJ Soto. There he is, plugged in to his virtual reality church that he pastors in the metaverse. Uh, I'm going to quote from the article. On a recent Sunday, he, Soto, preached at a cavernous virtual cathedral its long halls illuminated by light from stained glass windows. A colourful assembly of avatars listened to the sermon. A giant banana sitting in the front pew next to another man in a shirt and tie, plus a mushroom, a fox and armoured knights. I mean, you guys look pretty boring by comparison to that mob, don't you? At the end of this virtual gathering, uh, the people who attended took turns in sharing why they came to virtual church that week. One person said, here in Scotland, it's cold, it's wet, it's not very nice outside, but here I am sitting in this beautiful church with my heating on. Another, who is represented by a robot-like avatar, said, as a person with social phobia, it's easier for me to be here than in a physical church. Still another person said, virtual reality can allow people to meet without judgment, regardless of physical ability or appearance. And what you think about those reasons. 
I think what we can say is that for these people, this virtual reality church was preferable because by attending that church, they were being spared from the inconvenience, the disappointment, the discomfort of meeting with people and having to relate to real human beings. Now, whatever you may think of the future of the church in the metaverse, the point that I'm trying to make here is just to demonstrate that right now there is an attempt to remove the Christian life from its normal context of a local church, Uh, an attempt to eliminate the embodied experience of following Jesus shoulder to shoulder with other sinners. That's happening in our world. And to be honest, uh, putting my cards on the table, I'm sympathetic to that, that attempt. I'm sympathetic to where people are coming from who want to do that because let's be honest, uh, shackling yourself to other people in a church is often hard. It's messy. It's painful. It's inconvenient. It's frustrating. So I'm sympathetic. And yet, you probably saw this coming. What I want to show you today is that God has no intention of letting us divorce our commitment to Jesus from our commitment to his people. God's got no intention of letting those two things separate. Despite the difficulty, despite the inconvenience of it, God actually intends for our real relationships with one another to be a means of his grace in our lives. And if we jettison the church then we miss out on the good that God has for us. Uh, Lehman and Hansen, in their book, they say this, You may have many reasons not to rediscover church, and one reason why you must. Because through these people you don't much like, God wants to show his love to you. God does not invite us to church because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. And I want to show you in Romans chapter 12, the love, the kind of relationships that God is calling us to have with one another the kind of relationships that are just what we need and that are part of how God shows his love to us. Now, you may know uh, the book of Romans, the way it's structured is that the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, who's writing it, has explained the amazing good news of the gospel in in great depth and clarity. Uh, He has spoken about God's amazing love and mercy for 11 chapters, about how we were all hell-bound rebels destined for judgment. But God intervened in human history, sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, the death that you and I deserve, so that anyone who trusts in him would be spared from that judgment and receive eternal life instead. Paul has explained this good news beautifully for 11 chapters. And then when he gets to chapter 12, uh, have a look what he says there in verse 1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See that big therefore at the start of chapter 12, verse 1? It's a signal to us that everything that follows in the book of Romans from that point onwards is the application of what Paul has said in chapters 1 to 11. 
in view of God's mercy, Paul says, in view of everything he's done for you in Christ, rescuing you, in view of his love for you, this then is how you are to respond. This is what difference the gospel is to make in your life, Paul is about to explain. And so the thought is, well, you come to chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, Paul, show me how does the gospel make a difference in my life? In view of God's mercy, what? What am I supposed to do? What is Paul's number one priority? The first thing he wants to teach this church in Rome to do in light of the gospel. Take a guess. Is it evangelism, perhaps? That seems pretty important. In view of God's mercy, tell other people about Jesus? No, that's not where Paul goes. What's what's the first thing that Paul wants them to do in light of the gospel? Maybe be sexually pure? In view of God's mercy, flee from sexual immorality? Is that where Paul goes with chapter 12? Uh Uh-uh. Where Paul goes with chapter 12, the very first place that the gospel is meant to touch down in your life is in the relationships that you have with other Christians in church. That's what chapter 12 is all about. That's how important our relationships with one another are. They are the primary place that we evidence that we have understood and received the gospel in how we relate to one another. So what I want to do, my job today, is just to zoom in on a small piece of chapter 12, just on verses 9 and 10. And I want to show you in those two verses the pattern of relationships that God calls us to in Christ And what I've I've done is I've broken it down into three parts, and you'll see as we go how these parts kind of build together, the pattern of relationships that God is calling us to in Christ. The first thing Paul says in chapter 12, verse 9, is he says that we are to actually love one another. Actually love one another. You see how verse 9 starts with that phrase. It says, love must be sincere. And uh, given the context, remember chapter 12, he's talking about your relationships with each other in church. Uh, What he's saying here is that your love for one another, not just love in a general sense, but your love for your brothers and sisters in your church must be sincere. Uh, You may know that the the Greek language has many different words uh, for love. In the English language, we just have that one word, but Greek has several that all have slightly different nuances. And the word here in chapter 12, verse 9, that gets uh, translated as love is the Greek word agape. It's a word that Paul has used very carefully, actually, earlier in the book of Romans to speak about God's love. That's agape love. So if we take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, famous verse, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love, his agape, for us in this. How does God show his love? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what is God's agape love like? Well, you can see a couple of features of God's agape love there, that this love takes the initiative. And also this love is costly. You notice that? It takes the initiative because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. This love comes to us. And it's costly in the sense that it cost God the death of his own son to love us. That's what God's agape love is like, initiative-taking and costly. And so come back to chapter 12, verse 9. Keep that in mind. Read verse 9 again. Your love must be sincere. Your love, your agape love for your brothers and sisters must be sincere. You know what God's agape love is like. Do the same for one another. You have been the recipients of God's love, his mercy, and so now you are to pass that love on to other people 
in the same way that God loved you, taking the initiative at great personal cost to yourself. That's how you're to love each other. And you see, that's actually part of the way that you and I experience God's love for us in the day-to-day. It is translated to us through one another. Show agape love to one another, says Paul. And he says there, do it sincerely. Now, the word sincerely uh, literally means without hypocrisy. Uh, And uh, the, the word hypocrite in the Greek language, it was a word that actually was used to describe an actor. If you acted in a play on stage, you were a hypocrite. It wasn't derogatory, just the name of somebody who puts on a mask and does one thing with the mask on, but then does another thing when the mask is off. And so here it's saying love without hypocrisy. Uh, Don't just pretend to love like an actor does and then don't do that. Don't say one thing and do another. That's his point. And it's very easy, isn't it, for our love, for Christian love, to be all talk and no action, right? Uh, Very easy for that because everybody will agree, oh, yes, loving loving other people, that's important. Yeah, sign me up. I'm up for that. But how much does that actually translate into action in our lives? Paul is pushing us here by saying your love must be sincere without hypocrisy. He's pushing us not to be satisfied with that kind of empty politeness towards each other, the smile, the nod, the how you going. That's not like God's agape love, is it? It's as if Paul is saying, I don't just want you to say that you will love each other. I want you to actually do it. So, So show me, where have you taken the initiative with somebody this week? How much has it cost you to love somebody this week? Point to it in your diary because this sort of love should show up in real tangible ways. Actually love each other. That's his point. If you've experienced the mercies of God, then show the same love towards your brothers and sisters. It is the most fundamental application of the gospel. In fact, I want to read a quote to you from Mark Dever, the American pastor and writer. He said this, Those who don't give themselves in loving commitment to each other have no reason to think that they've given themselves in loving commitment to God. Let that sink in for a second. Those who don't give themselves in loving commitment to God, to each other rather, have no reason to think that they've given themselves in loving commitment to God. Those are strong words, aren't they? But he's right because you know what he's doing there? He's just paraphrasing the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we know God's love, then we must actually love each other. Now, what's that going to look like? (laughs) Let's put some flesh on these bones. Well, Paul goes on with the second part of this description. First, actually love each other. By doing what? By pursuing what is good for each other. That's the second part of this picture here. By pursuing what is good for each other. You see the second half of verse 9 there. Let's read it again. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And that's a bit of a random kind of instruction, isn't it? Just dropped in there in the context of relationships with one another. We've had this command to love and then straight away this instruction to hate. I mean, what's that about? 
I mean, obviously, it's good advice in general. Christians would agree with this. Yes, we are to hate evil and to cling to good, of course. Amen. But keep in mind the context here is your relationships with other people in church. And so I think what Paul is saying is that we ought to hate that which is harmful or damaging to our brothers and sisters. And we ought to cling to and pursue that which is beneficial to them. That's the kind of love that we are being called to here. It is a love with a moral dimension to it. Our love points towards good. That's the direction our love goes. And those words that Paul uses there, hate and cling, uh, the Greek language doesn't have much stronger words for that. It speaks of our aversion to uh, certain things and our pursuing of other things with all of our energy and all of our might that we can do. If I am to be so committed to your welfare that I will fight for you, that you are not harmed by evil, and I will do everything that I can to see that you are blessed and done good to, Now, that begs the question, I think. Hopefully, this is the next question in your mind. Well, what does that good look like? Okay, do good to my brothers and sisters. I understand, but what? (laughs) What's What good? What are we talking about here? Is this just about trying to make sure that your neighbor is, you know, happy and healthy? Is that the good that God is calling us to? If God is saying here, forcefully direct your energy towards the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, what am I aiming for? What is it that God says is good for you? Well, unsurprisingly, God's picture of your good actually goes far beyond your physical well-being. It includes that, of course, uh, but God is even more interested in the health of your soul. You see, God's picture of your good is that you would have a heart full of love and trust for the Saviour, that you would be someone who knows and cherishes God's word, that you would be so full with the Holy Spirit that you overflow with love and good deeds, that you would be putting off your old self and putting on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's God's definition of good for you. Your spiritual maturity, your growth in Christ, your Christ-likeness, put it however you want, that's the good that you are being called to to pursue for your brothers and sisters. You are to exert yourself in that direction. And, and realize here, this is that sounds like a job description for a pastor, right? It's not. It's the job description for a Christian, every one of you. If you've received God's mercy, then you are to love other Christians for their good by helping them to grow up in Christ. That is the most fundamental application of the gospel. And so as tempting as it might be, to give up on being a part of a church community right now, God is clear that that's not an option for you. God actually intends for a major part of your and my Christian life to be helping other Christians in your church to follow Jesus, no matter how messy or inefficient or frustrating that may be. Now, I realize as I share this with you tonight, I may be preaching to the choir because you're here, you're showing up, you're committed. And so I actually just want to take a moment to talk to the people who are watching on the live stream. Now, I know that there is a whole variety of reasons why some of you are not here with us tonight in person. There are very legitimate reasons. Some of you are in isolation. Some of you have health concerns that prevent you being able to gather with large crowds. There are legitimate reasons. 
But there are also less than legitimate reasons why some of you have not returned to your community here at WBC. And so to you, I want to urge you, out of concern for your good, your growth, your maturity in Christ, to take the step of regathering with us here at WBC. If you are not part of this family, if you are not shoulder to shoulder with us, you miss out on the good that God has intended for you through these people. God wants to build you up in Christ by having these people love you. So come and join us. Come back to us. We miss you. So if God wants us to love one another in such a way that we do good to each other, to build us up in Christ, I think we ought to think pretty seriously about how we're going to go about doing that, don't you? Uh, the real question that we ought to ask ourselves is, well, what is it going to look like for me to do good to other people in this church this year? Now, uh, that's a very broad question, perhaps so broad as to be unhelpful. So let me suggest that you think about that, how you are going to exert yourself for the good of others at two levels. Uh, let me introduce you to this idea of loving the many and loving the few. This is just helpful for trying to give you some, some things to grip onto. Uh, there are certain things that you could commit yourself to actions that you could take that would be a blessing to a large group of people. Uh, things like praying for the preaching of God's word here at WBC. Things like giving financially to the work of the gospel. Things like singing loudly when songs are being sung so that other people can be encouraged. Here's a special 6pm suggestion. Perhaps one of the ways you could love the many is by arriving a little bit before quarter past six. Just a thought for the 6pm service. <laughs> You could join a ministry team. That would be a great way to love the many. We've heard about opportunities tonight for you to serve and get involved. How are you going to love the many? Pick something. But then also think about how you're going to love the few in much more specific, targeted kind of ways. It might be some people that you meet up to pray with. It might be the members of your home group. What actions are you going to take to build them up in Christ? Uh, perhaps you could be the person who always makes the phone call to that friend who didn't come to church or home group over the last week and check how they're going. Uh, perhaps uh, you could be the person who makes a point to always sit with a newcomer in church, get to know them, befriend them, welcome them into the family. Maybe uh, you could be somebody who uh, meets up to read the Bible with that Christian who's struggling a little bit at the moment with some doubts. There are countless ways that you could do this to love the many and love the few. And so after my talk, in your discussion time, I'm going to get you to think about this and to share with one another some ideas about how you might do this. What will it look like for you this year in real ways to love one another? You need to have an answer to that question. Uh, now, I want to acknowledge at this point, and some of you may have already arrived at this point before me, that the love that we've been talking about tonight uh, thus far, it's this, this love which is costly, this love which takes the initiative, that seeks the good of other people, that sounds like the love we're being called to is all about doing. Uh, and and um, Christians talk like that sometimes. You may have heard Christians, pastors, perhaps myself even, say, you know, love is a verb. You know, what are you doing to show that you love somebody? Those kinds of things. You don't have to wait till you've got a warm and fuzzy feeling inside you before you love somebody. That's a common kind of Christian statement. And, and that sort of thing is is partially true, but it's not the whole truth <laughs> because Paul's got something else to tell us in these verses of the pattern of relationships, the pattern of love that we are to have 
for one another. Yes, we are to actually love one another, not just pretend. Yes, we are to pursue what is good for the other person. But lastly, the last thing Paul wants to show us is that we are to do that with deep and real affection for one another. That's what God wants from us. Let's read those verses again, verse 9 and 10. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Uh, the word there, be devoted, in verse 10, is a special word. It only gets used once in the whole Bible, and this is it. Uh, it's a word that's probably better translated as tender affection. It's the kind of affection uh, that you would experience in a family, a parent to a child. Think of a, a newborn uh, being held by its mother and the mother staring lovingly into that child's eyes. That's the tender affection of the word that gets translated here as be devoted. Uh, but then that second word there, be devoted to one another in love, it's another one of those Greek words that has a very specific nuance of love. It's the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, brotherly affection. And so, so realize what Paul is saying here is he takes these two terms and sort of pushes them together. These terms that are usually reserved for family relationships, tender affection within a family, brotherly affection between siblings. He says that's how you are to relate to one another. Uh, you are to have tender affection for one another in brotherly love. You see, what God is saying here is it's not enough to just do good for each other and to have your heart turned off the whole time. No, he wants us to feel deep and real affection for each other as we do it. He wants our hearts involved and open in the process, which is an astounding thing for God to want from us, isn't it? God is not interested in just having robots who do his bidding with nothing going on on the inside. God is commanding you to feel, to feel affection for the other people in this room as real brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, why? <laughs> why does God care? I mean, surely it's okay if I say, well, I'll love you, but I don't have to like you. Why does God have a problem with that? I'll tell you why. It's because I think that when we actually have affection for one another, it is a testimony to the truth of who we really are in Christ. The truth that God is our Father, that he has saved us into his family, and that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that kind of affection is appropriate for people who are siblings. That's the reality to which our affection for each other points. And so if we feel hatred or resentment or indifference towards each other, that actually contradicts the truth of who God is and who we are. We're not enemies. We are not casual acquaintances who just bump elbows on a Sunday. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, friends. And so our feelings for one another, well, they can either tell the truth about that or they can tell a lie about that. Now, it may be the case for some of you who are here tonight, some of you who are watching on the live stream, that you barely feel any affection towards anybody else in this church. I recognise that that may be the case. Uh, maybe that's actually part of the struggle that you've had in re-emerging after the last lockdown and reconnecting with people. You've been thinking that, well, I just don't love these people, so maybe I should give up on this whole Christian community thing. 
If that's you and if deep and real affection for your brothers and sisters is feeling really hard to come by right now, what are you supposed to do about it? First thing that I would say to you is if, if, if that's who you are right now, don't despair. Uh, because love is not a binary thing, is it? Love is not something that you either have or you don't have. We all have love in varying degrees and we all have room to grow in our love. So don't despair that you don't have enough affection for your brothers and sisters, but do, secondly, do pray about it. Pray to God and ask the Holy Spirit to grow this affection within you. He is the spirit of love, after all. God wants this fruit of his spirit in your life. And so pray earnestly that God would change your heart towards your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray and ask God to help you to obey this command to feel affection. He can do it. He can change even the hardest heart. And thirdly, I would say as a point of advice, if you are struggling to feel affection towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, then have Romans 12 be your guide. Focus on the mercies of God. Whenever you lack affection for your brothers and sisters, whenever it just feels so inconvenient and so messy and that you would just be much better off if you didn't have to bother, focus on the mercies of Christ, the mercies of God in the gospel. Remember the big eternal realities that you believe, that God is your father, that he has gone to great lengths to make you a child and to bring you into his family, that he loves you with an initiative-taking, costly, sacrificial love and that that love will never waver or fade. Remember that he is the father of the other Christians that you are struggling to love too, no matter how different or difficult they may be. Remember that God sees worth in that person. Remember that God is at work in that person even now to transform them from one degree of glory to another until they are a perfect work of art in Christ. And remember when God's work is finished in that other Christian's life, you will be standing shoulder to shoulder with them before the throne of God in your father's house for eternity. Remember the mercies of God. Preach these things to yourself. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 12. Fill your heart with the reality of God's love so that it overflows towards your brothers and sisters for their good. Do not be content with indifference towards those for whom Christ died. Friends, that's the pattern. That's the love. Those are the relationships that we are being called to in Christ. Now, we've, we've come to the end of this three-week series. We've spent these three weeks thinking about this topic of Christian community and what it's going to look like and what we need to pursue this year because we know that shackling yourself with other people in a church is hard, messy, inefficient, and frustrating. And especially now, especially now, there are so many reasons why our commitment to one another might be weaker than it ever has been before. But I hope that you've been reminded over these past three weeks that God has no intention of letting you divorce your commitment to Jesus from your commitment to his people because it's through one another that God wants to show you his love. Let me read that quote from Rediscover Church again. God does not invite us to church because it's a comfortable place 
to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. So brothers and sisters, let me urge you, in view of God's mercy, to actually love each other this year, pursuing what is good for each other with deep and real affection. Let's pray. God of love, we, we know that we are weak and frail and selfish and sinful people. We know that we fall short of that perfect standard of love that you have shown to us in Christ. And we have no excuse, Father. We repent and are sorry that we do not love others the way that you have loved us. And yet, God, we know that that is what you are calling us to, to follow in your footsteps, taking the initiative, giving ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. So please would you help us to do that. Please would you fill us with affection for one another. Help us to see each other the way that we really are as brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved children of you, our Heavenly Father. God, we want our community here at WBC to be a shining light in this city, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We want people to come to know that you are the God of love because they can see the way that we love one another. And we thank you for your good design, uh, that you want us to experience your love being mediated to us through the hands and feet and mouths of one another. So, Lord, please help us to give of ourselves this year so that we might be built up in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.